Welcome to this special season of the Get Free podcast. It's an accompaniment to Dirge, Black and Indigenous Hemispheric Burial, a sound sculpture, which is a multimedia project curated by me, your host, Tao Lee Goff. In these five episodes, you will hear from collaborators on themes of stolen life and land in the Western Hemisphere. These conversations with experts on Black and Native studies informed a 30-minute video art installation that we produced as part of an architecture seminar at Cornell University. Dirge, a noun, a lament for the dead, a hymn, especially one forming a part of a funeral rite, a mournful song, piece of music, poem, or perhaps a sound sculpture. What is a sound sculpture, you might be asking? A sound sculpture is an intermedia and time-based art form in which sculpture or any kind of art object produces sound, or the reverse, in the sense that sound is manipulated in such a way as to create a sculptural as opposed to temporal form or mass. We imagined four bricks in the wall in the sound sculpture that symbolizes the different site-specific geographies, of departure to chart Black and Native life after multiple timelines of apocalypse throughout the Americas. Three groups of graduate students were assigned to curate their interpretation of a place-based sound sculpture. The four bricks represented are Manahata, the Caribbean, Ithaca, and the far future. Through experimentation with virtual reality, DJ equipment, augmented reality, spatial sound mixing, electronic rhythm composers, and 3D modeling, we were able to extend our current realities in order to pry apart the urgency of what BIPOC means, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, as a keyword for our times. Together, our group looked for new nonverbal forms of language for storytelling about hemispheric racial formation. The Dirge Collective examined from a spatial frame how Black and Indigenous life intersects in an arena determined by premature death because of the ongoing nature of European colonialism. We the living and the afterlives. Against the rushing of waves, this group invites the listener to wade through the oceans and flows of soundscapes and archipelagos. They imagine the chants of the Taino peoples across the Caribbean to choreograph a carnival of the living and of living in the wake of colonialism. In this episode, the Caribbean group explores and invites you to listen in on a conversation with Professor Adam Philogene Heron at the University of Bristol and wishes to thank Dr. Lennox Honeychurch for his expertise on the history of Dominica. Uh, first of all, I was uh, born and brought up in Dominica and um, I have really been very fortunate in a way because my uh, life has spanned the post-colonial immediate period and into independence. 
Uh, I was a negotiator for the independence of Dominica in the 1970s. Dominica got its independence from England in 1978. And as you heard from the brief bio, I've been involved in many aspects of uh, Dominican life and research. And so my focus essentially has been a cultural one, uh, a sort of sociocultural mix, interpreting the events that took place over time, but also backing them up with the changes in the culture and the patterns of living within Dominica. I um, went to Oxford University. I did anthropology, uh, focusing on visual anthropology as well as archaeology. And so I have used that background. It was a scholarship in which I had to return to Dominica and serve in Dominica. Well, I was fine um, because that's exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, and so over the years, I have been doing um, books and booklets, talks. Uh, I worked briefly with the University of the West Indies for about five years um, within their open campus. Thank you, Lennox. I'm Adam Philogen Heron, as was mentioned in the introduction. Um, the traces of uh, ancestral connection that bring me to Dominica and that have made me, um, that have always kind of drawn my, my, my scholarly attention back to Dominica, I guess begin when my grandparents on my maternal side left the islands, like the island, like many did in the, in the 1950s. Um, to a journey to what was then the kind of metropolitan center of empire um, to go to Britain. And interestingly, my, my grandmother um, worked in, in a tobacco factory in Bristol um, in the west of England. And my grandfather came and worked in Cadbury's chocolate factory as a security guard. And so they kind of moved along the kind of um, Atlantic, part of the kind of Atlantic triangle, another kind of Another um, another connection in the Atlantic triangles that that brought enslaved people from Africa and the same kinds of products that they were processing were coming from the Americas um, as they had, but were also coming from parts of West Africa as the cocoa in in Cadbury's chocolate would have been as well. Um, and so it was interesting that that they found themselves in in Bristol. Though it's interesting, though not um, unsurprising, because with a port city with a long and deep history of of um, of, of of slaves. Of slave ships and a deep relationship to enslavement with lots of plantation owners being from Bristol. Um, and knowing a little about that history or coming to know a little bit about that, that history of the city and also coming to know the history of my family and how we were connected to and had deep roots in the Caribbean. Um, as I moved through my, my undergraduate and then into my postgraduate scholarship, I realized that Dominica was going to be the place that I had to do research. I felt drawn to and repeatedly pulled back to this island. And it's it's a real pleasure to be in conversation with, with Dr. Honeychurch today as well, because like so many people, um, both in the island and and outside in the world with, with roots in Dominica, picking up his book, The Dominica Story, which has been republished multiple times or a series of editions, um, and enables those living overseas and at home to gain a deeper understanding of the island and also to kind of position the island within its wider kind of planetary history with connections to many different parts of the world, but also with its deeply rooted indigenous history of which there is still a large contingent of indigenous people and where the, the I would perhaps say the majority of the population can trace some indigenous lineage in Dominica as well. Um, 
as we'll speak about later within the session, there's there's lots to talk about in relation to the landscape, in relation to those histories that connect the ocean and the seas that surround the that surround the island. So we want to know how you think of your location in relation to relation to your research. This triangle you're already talking about, and I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna defer once again to to Lennox because there's a quote that always stands out from the from the introduction to the to the Dominica's story, which um, to to paraphrase, um, basically suggests that the landscape of Dominica is rugged, steep topography, it's dense vegetation, um, it's rushing streams and, and rivers. Um, it's kind of, a, it's, it's heavy rainfall as well. Um, that all kind of stem from its, its, its geological, its volcanic geological origins of which there are still nine, um, nine active volcanoes will be them will be them dormant in any in in any kind of um sense in terms of how they impact people's lives in the present um the landscape has been both a blessing and a curse to the island in some ways or at least that's how it's been narrated throughout history um insofar as the the lands the the landscape that's prone to landslides and to floodings in the context of heavy rain um which we saw in recent hurricanes as well as recent um, tropical storms as well, um, notably both Maria in 2017 and Erica in 2015. The landscape as well with its, with its fertile soils um, and with, with the, one of the widest distributions of, 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 of land tenure and land ownership as in, as in more Dominicans than most other islands within the Caribbean have access to a portion of land um, per capita. All of this can, can be considered both the blessing in terms of in terms of ability to provide food, ability for the for the island to be to be to some extent food sovereign, um, and that people have, have fought very hard for that sense of independence, being able to being able to grow their own ground provisions, being able to feed themselves in times of of monocrop decline when the export commodities that were demanded by the by the wider world, be that limes, be that be that um, bananas, be that cocoa, various different points in history. When there's been a kind of an outside crisis um, in the global economy, um, or, the, or the demand for a particular commodity has reduced, Dominicans have been able to grow their own food or have been able to rely on their green bananas to sustain themselves in, in times of hardship. So that's the blessing of the landscape. And then to some extent, according to who you ask, and the potential curse or the potential harder side of that is that, is that the, there are various different kinds of hazards, as I mentioned, that come with the land. And that the project which I'm working on at the moment identifies how people survive the effects of devastating hurricanes and tropical storms, um, and particularly how they heal. And often that healing is in relation to, to the land, um, returning to, to growing their own food, um, and in some ways, kind of unexpected forms of forms of healing as well. So if I think about one aspect of the project that we're working on relates to art and local artists and how and how there was in the aftermath of Maria, there was a kind of a boom of of creativity with the launching of um, of the Waitakubali Artists Association, as well as with various different artists who've been doing that that work all along, returning to their work, perhaps as a form of kind of therapy, but also as a form of as a form of income, perhaps when the country uh, began to open back up to overseas visitors. And I think of one friend um, who's a sculptor who lives very close to a river and also lives above the sea. And 
they were deeply affected by Hurricane Maria and lost two two family members in the storm, and also a neighbor who was a friend of mine who who lived just just across the street from them, um, who also lost his life. And I think of um, the sculptor in the family is a large family, but the sculptor in the family and how he used to have to journey high up into the forest to to find tree ferns, the fuige ferns, which he which he carves into these beautiful kind of mystic mystical faces. Um, uh, he's a he's a rasta in terms of his his spirituality and his kind of um, religious orientation, um, and is and has these kind of beautiful visions that he channels into into his artwork. Um, and into these fine carvings. And the Frigé carvings are a, a long-standing Dominican tradition that spans the indigenous as well as the black populations in the island. Um, and it was a, one amazing thing was that the, the storm brought down so much wood that caused so much devastation. But part of the kind of the, the work of, of recovering his own livelihood and returning to his sculptor work was that he actually found that many of these Frigés washed up right outside his, his house. Um, and I remember visiting them six months after Maria and, and going to their house and much of it was still under tarpaulin and um, an entire wall of the house was covered in these in these Fuige carvings that he that he'd done of various different bits pieces that had, had washed down and and that were outside of his home and so there was a kind of healing in that alongside much pain and devastation and I'd never want to move away from acknowledging that pain and devastation and just romanticizing that that healing process but just to acknowledge that that's the kind of the the that blessing and curse of the landscape within that small anecdote is kind of present in both the pain and 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 the kind of the the gift of the of, of the land in some way um i hope that doesn't take us too too far from the original question in relation to the land but just to say that there's a there's a certain Perhaps as well, and I don't know if Lennox would want to speak to that, there's a certain animal nature to the landscape as well that perhaps comes from the indigenous people. Um, Waitikubuli, the indigenous name of the island, means tall is her body. And so already there's a sense that the, that the land is alive. And I think in relation to various kinds of natural phenomena, you really feel the sense of the landscape as being, as being living. And we can perhaps talk about that in, in various different different kinds of ways as well. And I wonder what that that means the idea of a living landscape in relation to what you're thinking about. Great. Thank you very much. And it's good to have that basic setting and the importance of landscape to the unfolding of the human occupation of Dominica. Dominica mm. uh, is considered to be the most mountainous island of the Caribbean because of the nine volcanic centers that Adam has mentioned. It's an extremely rugged island and therefore from the very inception, uh, was a place of security and refuge for the indigenous people with the arrival of Europeans after the Columbus adventures. So you found that the indigenous people from uh, other islands who were being attacked mainly at the beginning by Spanish slave raiders, they went and occupied um, and swept through the flatter, smaller islands. And as they did that, the indigenous people retreated to the mountain, the more mountainous islands, particularly to Dominica. So Dominica was able to secure itself far better than the other early, earlier colonized islands. In fact, Dominica officially would be the last island in the Caribbean to be colonized because it wasn't until 1763 by the Treaty of Paris 
that the British were able to secure Dominica officially on the international map of the time as their possession. Because before that, in 1630, actually, the French and the English have came to a sort of agreement that to attempt to wipe out totally the indigenous Amerindian Kalinago people um, would be futile. And therefore, they signed a treaty in Bastyr in St. Kitts on the 30th of March, 1660, uh, to leave Dominica and St. Vincent to the indigenous people forever. Uh, this lasted in the case of Dominica for at least about almost 100 years. But what happened is with the increase in the value of sugar, of sugar cane, and the prices and desire in the metropolitan countries for sugar, the temptation to break treaties of this kind increased. And sure enough, in 1761, the British decided, look, uh, what are we keeping this island for in forest and all for a few hundred uh, indigenous people? Let us capture it. And the other thing about these paintings, um, I want to make the point that Brunias was a tourist painter. He painted for those people who were coming to Rome on the Grand Tour. And he was really a commercial artist painting Italian peasants and citizens of Rome in the mid-18th century in among the ruins of, of all of the buildings of Rome and painting them for sale. So when he came out to Dominica and painted elsewhere in the Eastern Caribbean, he was in, a, in effect following on his sort of tourist art. And he pumped out these paintings, um, some of them, he had more or less two sizes. One was a sort of landscape, like this one, and the others were more portrait size, if you're going to use the kind of computer printing uh, terminology. Um, and he just pumped these out and sent them by ship to be sold by agents uh, in England, made their way across to France, and many French artists copied them, and you see French engravings coming out, uh, but they, they're copied from, from Bunyas's work. So uh, the painting itself, besides the scene, the painting itself is a commodity uh, as part of the West Indian slave society uh, from, which, from which it came. And one of the things is we must also remember that he's painting for the plantocracy. So you will never, ever see in a Brunias painting, a painting of Agustin Brunias, you will never see the realities of slavery. You're never going to see people um, lined up on cane fields, cutting cane, whips, boiling houses with the steaming cauldrons, None of these. It's all this pleasant, um, happy-go-lucky aspects that he uh, represents because he knows what his clients want to put in their stately homes and their apartments, their flats in Bath, etc. So that's why it affects the nature of his work because he is still, in a way, a commercial artist for tourist art.
to provide a representation of the, as Eric Williams, the historian of Trinidad um, and the Caribbean says, the happy and contented slave. This is what he wants to represent. And of course, what happens is we have academics who take these paintings, sometimes out of context of where they're produced because they've never visited the place or they don't know enough about the background. They haven't researched the Caribbean enough. And they concoct these amazing stories, <laughs> which amaze me, uh, being somebody who is so tied to the, to the landscape. Uh, but essentially, that's what they are. They're these records of life that surrounded it at the time, but it was a very selective record, mm -hmm. as you see here. I wondered if I could just jump in at that point, because um, the this kind of idyllic and romantic picture that Brunias is kind of is developing, this romantic vision that he's also selling to perhaps to the to the to members of the planter class, but also as well to to absentee owners as well as to to consumers in Britain. This kind of idyllic image of of the Caribbean, and it's it's interesting that in the scene itself, you can see all of the figures on a kind of a horizontal footing. Um, it's only when you look a little closer in terms of just the, the visual aspect of the of the image itself. It's only when you look closer do you begin to start to see the kind of the kinds of inequalities and the and the the, vi the symbolic violence of those inequalities in terms of who has to hold the umbrella as as Lennox identifies and and even the slightly obscured by by shade and almost kind of um attempting to to to, to kind of merge the the laboring figures with the with the shadows of the backdrop it's only when you you look much closer and i didn't see it on first on first look the the laborer or enslaved man carrying the planter across the river um at, at first glance i had assumed without closely inspecting the, the painting that he was on horseback it was only in conversation with lennox later that i realized that it was a that the that the man was being carried by by a laborer or by an enslaved person and so i guess because of who as again lennox has, has highlighted who are the consumers and and whose vision of the caribbean is being kind of reproduced here um and is being kind of how the how how the place is being imagined is that we is that we we have to really decode what's going on here and again when we were in conversation earlier about this this picture the the glaring absences at this time of of the other absence of the the maroons those who at that time would have already escaped enslavement um and that interestingly dominica as 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 lennox was was saying before it became became uh formally um occupied as the plantation plantation colony um it was a kind of a motley society of those indigenous people um that had fled from other islands but also of um, Maroons who'd, who'd escaped enslavement in neighboring Martinique and Guadeloupe, um, and also of European woodcutters as well as small farmers as well. So you had a, you had a kind of, you had marinage or Maroons were present within the island before the plantation infrastructure, before the, before it became a kind of, before the British attempted their plantation, plantation project on the island. Um, and the maroons that that predate the plantation colony, the maroons that um, would have been up in the hills and up in the mountains at this time, um, aren't visible within this this image at all. They're they're outside of the the vision, the, the planter vision 
um, plantocratic vision of the society, um, at least in terms of how it's being rendered in these idyllic terms. There were there were inconvenience in terms of that vision um, that later would would as far as the the um, governor of the island or a later governor of the island would would need to be eliminated and destroyed to to fulfil their their plantation project. Um, and then also the indigenous people um, aren't visible in any clear or apparent sense. And, and by this time, as again, in conversation with Lennox, would have retreated to, to more mountainous um, areas and also um, further towards the more rugged east coast as well. Um, and again, so the indigenous presence is, is outside of that, that, that way that the society is being imagined, along with the kind of the, 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 the violence being, being hidden as, as well. Um, so again, it's kind of it's for a, it's for a kind of a palatable con European consumption essentially um, of the society, and as well, Lennox has, has reminded me that the places where these where many of these um, these paintings would have hung, the consumers of the paintings may have been absent absentee land landlords, kind of depicting their the the what their properties, as far as they were concerned, would look like, what the places that they that they that they um, owned. Uh, capital would look like from far away that they could hang in their stately homes and so on for visitors to see this kind of this this this, this pleasant image of the the Antilles. Dirge, Black and Indigenous Hemispheric Burial was made possible through a seminar that was taught by Tali Goff through the Mellon Collaborative Studies in Architecture, Urbanism and the Humanities Program at Cornell University. We are thankful to the collective passion of our many collaborators and folks that we have been in conversation with. For more information and to experience the sound sculpture, as well as to read the peer-reviewed journal article that accompanies the work, go to www.darklaboratory.com dirge.